Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title, Hatching Sherry. And joining me from near Denver, Colorado in the United States is author Bao Contron. Welcome to the program, Bao. Hi. So happy that we're able to talk this morning. This adventure book, Hatching Sherry, is uh, relatively short but has a great message. It is targeted at a specific audience. Share a little of the background history of uh, the title, Hatching Sherry, and Sherry is spelled S-H-A-R-E-Y, which is also unique. Introduce my listeners to a little of your background. Where are you originally from, and how did you end up in Denver and become an author? So um, I'm originally from Vietnam. Um, my family migrated here altogether, uh, which I'm so blessed to say, um, about in 1982, so when I was about two years old. So um, coming over here, we basically literally, well, we had $200 in our pocket, and we were a, a family of eight, and um, we kind of just uh, kind of grew our lives here in this unknown world. And it, it's kind of similar to what I've written here in, in the book, is that there was a, a platypus that was just put out into this world of the unknown. And the reason why, you know, I, I selected that title in general is just because, like, as you know, we were growing here in America. Hmm. We were just hatching our true selves. And so um, kind of like Sherry as well, she was kind of hatching herself as, as she was going through this adventure, finding who she was. Have you have you always had a passion for books and for writing? I did. I mean, I loved writing. I, um, I've written a couple 10, like I've written a couple 10 minute plays as well as, um, as well as a monologue. I've, I just found something, you know, just a, a love for writing. But, you know, growing up, also like cultural-wise, you know, it was always like, well, you become a doctor, become a lawyer, and all of that. So it was kind of on a journey to like the whole doctor land. And I, I mean, I loved science, too. And it was always, you know, I love science, but I love writing. It was kind of two different realms of things, because science is very concrete, where, you know, writing and art and artistic stuff is more of an abstract kind of like um, realm. Yes. So, you know, once again, the theme kind of goes back to Sherry is like, well, she's a lot of different things. So um, just kind of accepting all of that as me. You know, I, I love, I'm a, I'm a scientist and I'm a writer. Phenomenal. You, your, your story is about a platypus, and that's also a little bit of a unique animal. It's not one that uh, is, uh, I would say, not uncommon, but it is uh, not usually thought of as a child's uh, hero or heroine. How did uh, you, you decide on a platypus as your main character? Platypus is, I, I don't, I mean, I'm sure many people know, it's, a, it's one of the two animals that we know of right now that um, it, mammals, actually, one of the two mammals that um, are hatched from an egg. Most animals are given via live birth. Right. And, um, you know, something very, and the platypus out of the two animals was chosen because it has a lot of different features, you know, like a flat tail, like a, a, a bill kind of like a duck and you're like in web feet and claws at the same time with you know all these beautiful magnificent characteristics you know and I feel as though it's such a unique animal that you that that is embraced to kind of reflect on you know kids as well as that they are unique 
and they need to embrace every beautiful part of them. Like, and you know, in America, it's we're all kind of from you know a different realm. We're a big melting pot. Like, we got different cultures going on, from like Scottish mixed with Irish, mixed with um, German, and like we're all kind of mixed together in a melting pot. And just to kind of love that part of us, you know. Yeah, Sherry interacts with uh, another animal that I think many of us have uh, have been attracted to and that that's the beaver the beaver has some of the same characteristics with that flat tail correct that's correct were you trying to to indicate or underscore the fact that there's a lot of commonality between us and uh, maybe the characters of your book or they share a lot of the same interests perhaps yeah i mean i it I mean, I think a lot of us kind of share features with animals as well. You know, like the beavers, we, we always say, like, working hard as a beaver, you know, our work efforts and stuff, we can't kind of compare to those animals as well. And, um, yeah, these just similarities, like, I mean, the different characteristics between those characters, too. You know, the duck and the mole and the beaver, they all kind of are totally different um, personality-wise as well. So, I mean, not only characteristically, but um, just their personality kind of reflects on certain people, you know, in in this world that either, like, help us or just, you know, don't know any better or, you know, um, I just uh, don't know what to, to, to do with us. So. <laughs> now, since, since you've completed the book, I'm sure you've shared it with family, friends, and uh, perhaps even complete strangers. What has been the reaction, and, and who did you think would uh, would gravitate toward the story of Sherry? So, um, yeah, I mean, like, they, they, the first thing that they say, like, honestly, was the art. Um, which, you know, the cover page, I can't take credit for that one. That's actually my friend who did that cover page, but um, David Schwachnig. And um, the other pages we all did, but uh, they, they mainly just mentioned the artwork was, was what drew them in. And um, and uh, as far as, like, the, the gravitation towards it, I mean, I've heard, like, great reviews as to um, just children. Um, it, it, children who just kind of like the colors and the, the vibrancy of the images as well as um, just the underlying stories from m- moms and dads and parents in general. Uh, your, illustra- so, um, your illustration, it also says that your name is attached to that. Did you did you actually do some of the illustration in your book, or is that David's work entirely? So um, David's work was the actual cover page, and then the rest of it was um, was just me drawing it. And honestly, it was like a newfound kind of, kind of gig that I, I found as I was just sketching out how to, to, to second to um, David. However, he just, he was like, you know what, just go on with it. It looks great. So, I mean, and you found talent, right? That's incredible. <laughs> well, so you're a, yeah. you're, you're a scientist, you're an artist, you're a creator, creator, uh, a creative uh, also, uh, plays and uh you know, monologues, and uh, is there anything else that you uh, perhaps want to do in the creative end that you haven't attacked yet? <laughs> so, um, I know, this is this is the part of Sherry that I've kind of like to, um, and I'm working on a patent, pending the fully patent, um, right now I'm working on um, making it a trash can, a patented trash can as well. So um, hopefully we're going to kickstart that pretty soon. So anybody, whole... yeah, is that any, anybody ever accused you of being hyperactive or anything like that? I mean, I don't know. That's a, that's a that's a full pla- full platter of of activities. 
Yeah, they think I'm on like 60 cups of coffee, but really, I just, I mean, I really mean it, truly mean it when I want to create something to, to bring into reality, to grab all these images and just share it with the world, you know, um, making life easier, making life more accepting, making, you know, that's really what I'm truly passionate about. And um, whenever I can do that, I will make sure that I fit it into my schedule. Too, so. That's incredible. The The book itself, Sharing, uh, I'm sorry, Hatching Sherry, uh, how long did it take to complete? And what is the main message you're wanting to share with Hatching Sherry? So um, <laughs> I was, it took me approximately, well, I wrote that when I got back from um, New York. So it took maybe like, four or five days, but it took like the progression of like six months to edit it and um, to actually fully execute it. It took five years of, you know, pushing me mm. <laughs> to, to kind of start it and um, just kind of getting out of the fears of, of publishing a book. And the main message, like I've said on the phone, you know, many times was just that I want to get out is that, you know, just accept who you are. And once you do that and love yourself, you know, your possibilities are, are, are boundless and, and your limitations are, are just, they just disappear. So, um, I, I hope that's what, that's what kids are, are getting and just to love themselves because in this, it's, it, it's hard, you know, to, to kind of find that, that love for oneself. Absolutely. Um, this is an important message uh, for adults and children. Have adults mm-hmm. also uh, responded well to the book and to the story? Yeah, um, a lot of my friends and who aren't even parents have, have adored it just because, I mean, culturally, I, I have a very diverse group of friends who kind of face, you know, some of the similar um, difficulties of society, and, and they and they've come to like cherish that that message a lot because um, they too have, you know, have gone through the, you know, their journey, their adventure. Mine was coming here as an immigrant, but they've they've come here with literally just nothing. And um, they've shared just, I guess, joy of like, this is what, you know, this is what I went through and, and this is what I, I kind of want my life to become um, within, you know, this is what I want to become accepting of myself and all of that. So. Give, give a short bio of, of your main character, Sherry, S-H-A-R. E-Y, Sherry. G- give a bio of her. How would you describe her as a character? So, um, she's innocent. She's just always, she's innocent and she's just on an adventure. She's curious, you know, she wants to, to, to find love. That's what she really wants is just a place to be loved. And, um, she wants to do a lot of things and, um, but she doesn't know her, like she doesn't know her full potential yet. Um, so she's a curious, uh, fun, um, adventure seeking, well, yeah, curious, fun, adventure seeking, um, just girl who just wants to, who's finding love. Well, that the platypus is a, a unique uh, character. I don't know know that I've seen a, a platypus character as a main character in uh, in other children's books, but this is uh, beautifully done. Your illustrations are are spectacular. The uh, colors are bright, cheerful, and the story is one that should underscore and uh, remind children and adults alike how important it is to love yourself and to uh, chase your dreams. The title of the book again is Hatching Sherry. 
S H R A, excuse me, S H A R E Y. And my author, Bao Contran, has joined me from Denver, Colorado. Where can my listeners get a copy of your book? So it's um, the soft cover is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you want the hard cover, it's on Exlibris.com. And that is um, Exlibris, which is, sorry, I just want to make sure I'm spelling it right. L-I-B-R-I-S.com. Um, yeah, so you, you're available. It's on there. There's also ebooks on Amazon as well or on Exlibris. Um, but yeah, I hope, I hope everyone can enjoy this. I think everybody who supported this book along the way. And thank you so much, Jay, for your time well, um, interviewing me. Well. Honored, honored to visit with you. And I am hoping that this uh, will be a runaway success for you and that you are, are uh, also uh, embraced in your other, other uh, endeavors. Uh, thank you again for sharing your time and your story. Uh, the title of the book again is Hatching Sherry and my author, Bao Contran, B-A-O hyphen K-H-A-N-H, last name Tron, T-R-A-N. Those are ways you can uh, search online for this book and and other things that may come up in the future. Bao, thank you for joining me and and sharing your story. It's uh, inspirational. Thank you so much, Jay. I appreciate it. My (laughs) pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Extraordinary Happenings on the Edge of Lunacy. And joining me from Alaska in the United States of America is author Mr. Frankie Princeton. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is an account of your family and family history that goes back a number of years, back, uh, I think, to the 50s, if I uh, am understanding the total overview picture. You have written a book that is uh, startling to read. It's it's almost like looking into someone's personal diary. Did you intend it to be so personal in the way that you uh, have approached this, this writing? Uh, yes, I did. And what was the reason for that? What does the book encompass? 
Um, I, I really wanted to help uh, other people out there. I, I wanted it to be like a story. I didn't want it to be like a, um, um, to where people were reading a professional doctor's book. I wanted it to be like a story so that they could fully understand all the content and all the uh, things that went into uh, helping my, my mother through those crises in her life. Yeah, your mother had some serious issues that go back probably to her, her early childhood. I don't know how much you uh, you delved into that, but there were some, some instances uh, that are mentioned in the book. All of the personal instance, instances, uh, you, you mentioned uh, suicides and deaths and other things that took back that, that took place in your, your distant family history. Were those all factual, or were there some of them just kind of uh, uh, an expansion of, uh, of the difficulties your mama had? Um, they were all factual. The, the only thing that was... Um, probably ad-libbed basically was um, just trying to come up with a basis for um, how it happened. The actual events did happen um, with, my, with my mother's brother. We weren't sure. Right. But I wanted to add that in because um, she talked about her brother quite often and she only seemed like she only talked to me about her brother. You had other siblings. How many siblings in the family? Um, four, four siblings, and you uh, total of five. Total of five, five siblings. Yeah. You you have uh, some very difficult um, scenes in your account of of your family life and your mom's in specific. You have written this book ideally to to uh, introduce and share the journey of someone who has mental illness. Is that a, a good way to to describe your book? Yes, it is. And you mentioned and used the term on the edge of lunacy. You have also outlined, which I thought was very helpful as a reader, drug uh, introduction to your family. When I say drug introduction, it's prescription meds that were part of the family uh, history. Those were a contributing factor to some of the problems your family encountered. Is that also a correct observation? I I believe so, um, because there wasn't a clear understanding of my mom's condition. Um, even as you know, years pass, um, she was constantly changing different types of medications, and I think that kind of hindered her um, health as well. She also had some injuries in life, and meds were prescribed at that point. Those, do you feel those also led to maybe dependency and, and other issues that contributed to the mental health of your mom? Absolutely, absolutely. And what would you suggest to someone who is listening or will read your book? What is the the message that you want to get to them? That um, mental illness is nothing to be afraid of, um, whether it's a family member or a friend, even someone that um, you might, you know, know or see on the street. Um, it scares a lot of people, you know, because of this, because of the unknowns and. Um, you know, you see someone acting in a certain behavior, you know, it kind of makes you stand back and kind of makes you afraid to want to help them. And you should use caution. There's no doubt about it. But um, these people do need help. And um, being afraid and not wanting to help, I think, is uh, is the bad thing because my mom, I don't think she 
was fully uh, understood. And I don't, and part of it is her fault. Uh, well, I wouldn't say her fault, but I, it was part of her deficiency. She wasn't able to convey what she really was going through in her mind. You know, even in her later years, uh, the things that she were doing, she they seemed normal to her. They were very abnormal to me and my siblings and the rest of the family. But uh, I just don't want, I want people to not be afraid, you know, even in church, church members would be afraid of my mother. And um, that kind of took me back and made me not upset, but wonder why they would feel that way. You know, she seemed normal to me. Yes. Even though she had a mental illness, it seemed normal to me because I'd always helped her as much as I possibly could. But other people seemed like they didn't want to try to understand. There were times, though, your mom appeared to be just like any other individual in the public marketplace. It was really behind closed doors that most of this came out. Is that also accurate? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. You know, as long as she took her medication, you know, my dad um, explained that to me at a very young age. He told me that the doctors told her if she took medicine she would be fine for the rest of her life. She would have to take medicine for the rest of her life. But, and it kind of, and it made her normal. But, you know, as the body gets older and the mind gets older and, you know, the body changes, I think the medication has to change. And I don't think the the doctors um, helped her in that regard to making sure that as she got older, the medication kept up with her, her body changes. Yeah, there there were a lot of medications that were thrown out and still happen today. I've I have a brother-in-law who's a dependent that lives with me, and you know my wife who is very diligent about looking at the outcome, the um, the results, the the other things that happen from taking meds, is very cautious about things that she takes into her body and and probably has uh, saved him from serious illness in other other regards the general consensus though back in the 60s and 70s and even you know even today is that doctors know everything and this is not accurate is it it's not accurate you know they take an educated guess you know from my experience i i'm i'm not a doctor i um don't know all the doctor lingo and everything that they that they do but i one thing i do know is that i experienced that and I experienced my mom's condition for over 40 years. And there's a lot of things I do know that helped her more than the medication and more than the, what the doctors had to do. And um, I did whatever it took to try to help her as much as I could. And, you know, having these different kind of medications out there and you mix them, you know, something's bound to go wrong, bound to mess, mess up something uh, neurologically. Absolutely. I, I, can, I can attest to that in my own family. My mother, who had uh, some back surgery, you know, s- several years before her death, was put on opioids and had opioid dependent. You, couldn't, you could not uh, rationalize with her and, and let her know that this was harming her body. She did live, fortunately, to, to 91 years of age, but the quality of life was diminished immensely because of her dependency. You have also done a, a service of outlining Ritalin, and this is a very highly uh, prescribed medication for many reasons. Now, what is the history of Ritalin? 
Uh, you know, I'm not really, sh- really sure. But when it came to my mother, um, it was probably one of the first medications that uh, they prescribed to her from what my dad's account. And it was highly used back in the um, in the in the early fifties, well, sixties, I believe. Yes, it, it's uh, also a, a methamphetamine, is it not? I mean, it it actually stimulates the the body and and the mind to uh, speed up somewhat. Yeah, it's 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 it is it affects um, you know chemicals in the brain and nerves that contribute to. Uh, you know, impulse and control. In the years of your dealing with your mom's illness, how long did it take you as an individual uh, from, I know, uh, growing up as a child, you probably thought things that were going on were fairly typical with most families. Uh, how long was it before you came to the realization your mom had some illness issues that uh, that perhaps uh, were beyond the norm? Uh, it didn't really... I didn't really recognize that there was a serious issue until in my, um, I think teenage years, it was in my, you know, when I was eight, eight or nine is when I took on the role to try to help her as best I could, even without not understanding what was going on, but I knew something wasn't right. I don't, I'm most sure that my dad didn't tell me. He didn't say that something was wrong. But I could detect something was wrong with my mother, and um, and I took on that role to try to help her as much as I could. Now, in my 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 mid-teens was when um, I really started to wonder what was wrong, what happened, and how did it happen? And it was um, it was quite quite I was quite taken back because none of the family, my mom's family, found the strength to tell us what happened to her. We had to kind of find out on our own. Uh, uh, siblings had to find out on our own what happened, what 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 started this whole thing uh, that got her so messed up in her mind. Your story takes place all over in I would say all over, but uh, throughout the United States. Your family moved several times. You are currently in Alaska, but uh, your family story deals with the South, uh, Louisiana, and other yeah, places, California. Louisiana. Louisiana specifically, what is there in your story that you think will maybe grab the attention of the reader the most? Is there one incident that really stood out in your mind? And then as a follow-up to that, how did you remember the details of what took place in your family? Um, the answer to your first question is, um, you know, there are just a number of things in the, in the book I think would grab people's attention to make them put them in awe of how stuff like this could happen, especially at me as a, at a young age. You know, we didn't get any help. I don't recall ever being asked if we need some help, and, and I think it's important. This is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I think it's very important that we have families that deal with it. you got to get these the children, you got to get the family members some help. You know, they got to be able to sort through it. You can't do it on your own. The only thing that ha- helped us was that we had other siblings that we could talk about it, but it wasn't enough that we just talked about. It. We needed someone else. We didn't know that we needed someone else. You know, wish wish that would have happened. And there are a number of community service organizations that now can help that perhaps weren't available back when you were growing up. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that that you have now that where people can get help. 
but, but again, let me go back to what I said earlier that, you know, mental illness scares people. Um, and the other part about that is when you, when people talk about getting help, you know, they talk about a psychiatrist, talk about, um, um, you know, going before a shrink and, you know, that's all been taboo for years. And that's one of the reasons I think why a lot of people don't get help because, you know, as a kid, you know, we used to joke about it. You know, kids used to joke with me, you know, oh, you're going to see, you know, people, you, you going to see a shrink and, you know, and you shun away from that when, when you hear that, oh, you must be crazy. And I hate that word crazy. I really mm-hmm. do. And I've heard had a lot of people use that towards my mother and they don't know. They really don't know that there is a serious mental condition here where she needs help. And she's not crazy. She, she lacks a deficiency. She lacks things that normal people have. It's a courageous book and filled with many insights into your family dynamic and your personal life and the life of your siblings. It uh, covers about about 50 years, I'm guessing, of, of time in your family uh, with many incidences outlined. It's 157 pages, and it's a fascinating read. Again, your desire is to help people who might be facing similar instances uh, as are outlined in your book. Thank you for sharing your family story and your personal history. The title of the book, again, is Extraordinary Happenings on the Edge of Lunacy. My guest and author, Mr. Frankie Princeton. Sir, there are many listeners who will want to get a copy of this. Uh, How do they do so? They can go to um, exlibris.com and um, they can pick up the book there. And um, I, I do have a website, and it's at Barnes & Nobles. You can find it on Barnes & Nobles and um, at Amazon.com as well. Right. Well, they can do a search under your name, under the author's name, of Frankie Princeton, and probably locate your website. That would be a great way to keep in touch and perhaps share some stories that uh, you may want to address personally, or are you doing blogs out there or any writings on your website? Uh, that's in the process at this time. At this time. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing your story. This interview will be around for a number of years, so hopefully it'll have a positive impact on not only the listeners, but on those who read your book. And best of luck in the future. Hopefully this will uh, will impact our world. Thank you for sharing your story. And, and Jake, can I say one other thing? Absolutely. Yeah, the, um, the, the one question you asked, and how did I remember so much stuff? Yes. Um, I, I, I have to thank God that I, I have a I appeared to have a really good memory and I remembered a lot of this stuff when from a very young age and over the years, you know, I would jot stuff down. I'd write something here, write something there, but I never thought about writing the book. And, and until after my four years after my mom died, I got to thinking, you know, I'm remembering all this stuff from when, when it happened when I was a kid and I like to write this stuff down, and that's that's how I, you know, kind of was inspired to write the book because I want to help folks. And and, the, and my my website is www.frankieprinceton1.me, uh, and that's the website where you can look at the uh, the book and order the book as well. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you for sharing your story and helping others uh, through the story and the uh, the family history that you have shared. Are you 
thinking about doing a follow-up or perhaps another book, or was this your primary goal in your writing career? Uh, this is my primary goal. I, I am currently working on another book, um, but nothing. Uh, it's totally on the other side of the spectrum uh, when it came to this. This is a one-time thing, and um, I, I really cherish this because it has something to do with my mother, and you know, I love her so much, and just wanted to, you know, wanted to make her proud. But I want to want to help people. My listeners, again, the title of the, book, title of the book is Extraordinary Happenings on the Edge of Lunacy. My guest, Mr. Frankie Princeton. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Thank you very much. It was my honor to speak with you, and uh, God bless you. Ple- pleasure to visit with you as well. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Back to Ex Libris. The title of the book, Tenuous Tendrils, and the author, Tom Corbett. He joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Tom. Uh, hello, glad to be here. Well, this is quite a journey you're going to take us on, a journey of reflections, a, dur- a journey to take us back into the 60s in many ways with an individual who basically uh, went to Canada because of the Vietnam War. That was the bottom line, and of course, a lot of consequences because of that. Exactly. Uh, uh, I suppose at its core, it's a story about trying to find one's moral compass or principles to live one's life by, and this is a story of a young man uh, from an Irish working class background who had uh, uh, and it was also a good athlete, he had a life before him, but he uh, was swept up in the anti-Vietnam War fever of the 1960s and uh, found himself outraged and protesting and becoming involved with a group uh, that he formed a bond with, but was, which was going off in a direction he became uncomfortable uh, staying with, and he had to make a choice. His life is about choices, and he had to make a choice. And uh, he probably he took what he later thought was a coward's way out. He fled to Canada, uh, and then really eventually, after some struggles, formed a a new life as a professor at the University of British Columbia. And the whole story takes place one uh, over the course of one week when uh, he is retiring as a professor, and through 
During that week, a number of the people in his past life uh, find their way to this event. Now, when you say his past life, when when he lived in the United States? Yes, his past life in the United States. So uh, the sister whom he loved very much, uh, you know, some of the people he protested with, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and other people that he met in Canada but could never form strong attachments to. Somehow that those early experiences took something out of him. And so he had really trouble uh, relating in a very personal way with, with people. And they all come together, most of them come together during this uh, one week. And it becomes a kind of a psychological exploration of uh, how he reconnects or not and finds redemption or not uh, during this sort of cauldron of personal reflection and interchange. And uh, so, in a way, it's it's you know it's part of, part love story, but it's part a philosophical treatise and it's part of a history lesson, and it really gets at really core issues of you know what did people think about and feel and you know as they made basic decisions about what is patriotism, what is commitment, what does sacrifice mean, what are these basic dimensions of of human life, what do they really mean? So a lot is packed into that, that that one week. A lot of inner turmoil, obviously, and trying to, as you put it, make sense out of competing claims upon their loyalty. So that is, uh, I mean, it is what it is, and many people went through it and are still going through it. It was, for those in the audience who uh, are too young <laughs> to have experienced it, uh, it was a cauldron of conflict uh, back then, and and people were torn apart. You know, uh, uh, in terms of what does it mean to be a patriot? Uh, you know, what, it, what does it mean to take a stand for uh, uh, based upon one's principles? How do you figure things out? And that's what a lot of the characters do uh, is is sorting out. Were they right or wrong? Did they take the correct stand or not? And how do you know whether, when you make these decisions with an unformed mind when you're in your early 20s and college years, uh, how do you know you are not, you know, you're uh, taking the right road or the wrong path? And these are not easy things to sort out. So uh, I, I sort and I, I play with those feelings and concepts and that angst and, and those core sort of dilemmas, conundrums uh, through the characters in this, uh, in this novel. And I can imagine being raised in, a, uh, in an American-Irish family, a lot of deep roots about being an American and the responsibilities of being an American. That part of the book obviously comes out of my own experiences, uh, having grown up in an ethnic, well, Irish-Polish, but it was sort of dominated by the, an, an Irish neighborhood uh, family and culture. And it was a culture that was very rigid. There was right and wrong. So what the uh, protagonist in the book struggled with as a young man was breaking away from those rigidities of that came partly from the ethnic culture, partly from the church, partly from the uh, 
anti-communist uh, view uh, that, that dominated that decade. We had just evolved out of the McCarthy period, period of great paranoia. Uh, so it was, uh, it, you know, so these were it, it, these were times that certainly tried men's souls, <laughs> and uh, it, uh, it certainly did our protagonist and the others who were around him. So was he, well, how was he treated by his mom and dad, his sister, when he decided to leave? Uh, even before he left, the fact that he did not go to Notre Dame on a football scholarship, and he went to a non-Catholic school and he gave up football and he became involved, uh, these were these were uh, just disastrous uh, in the eyes of his, of his family. And long, there's an historical sort of back background uh, to his mother, who actually whose family grew up in in, in 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 part of Russia and was involved in the you know the Bolshevik Revolution. At least the family was they suffered greatly. So they, they bring these things forward, and of course uh, his his Irish father was heavy into the the Irish troubles, and he had his own commitment, but he couldn't understand his son. I mean. He, uh, it was it was a breakdown totally in communication. His sister adored him, but he left, and she and uh, she went on to a, a very successful life, but but was but but felt betrayed, and, and she had trouble uh, forming relationships. So there's a lot of intertwined, uh, uh, obviously, and 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 you know, sort of uh, almost a labyrinth of relationships and struggles that that uh, he faced. As a person, and, the, and that all the all the characters faced as they tried to relate to one another and, and what they were struggling with. So, do these characters who show up for his retirement uh, goes he goes through a week? Uh, uh, you describing what he's going through. Do these characters come friendly or still come challenging him? Uh, his sister arrives. Challenging him, uh, and that's if there's a, a love story aspect to this. Although there's a, there are some conventional sub uh, conventional love themes in, in the book, but I think a dominant sort of love story is he uh, trying to reconnect with his sister after after four decades where they they were not enemies but were very distant and. And interacted sparsely. Um, it was like them, them trying to find one another again. Uh, his, co- his colleagues from college, the, the, the couple, the three that, sh- that show up, actually had forgiven him a long time ago, but he kept the guilt within him. So the issue was uh, getting through the kinds of things he had stored in his head uh, as being failures on his part. Uh, you know, he left them. He left them in the lurch. A couple of them wound up in prison for what they were doing, and he felt this enormous amount of, of, of guilt for that. And actually, one of his, one of the kids he was very fond of and very close to in his anti-war days in the '60s, actually killed, was killed uh, in a tragic accident related to the anti-war uh, demonstrations. So, uh, and if you're Irish. I mean, the, the, this theme is very present in the book. If you're Irish, you walk around with a black cloud over your head, and uh, guilt is what you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
So these are this is something he he strongly had to deal with. A lot of it was in his own head, not all of it, but some of it was, uh, and it led to an uh, an inability on his part to relate to people on a meaningful way. I mean, he was very good, as many Irishmen are, at charm and wit and and getting through things and impressing people. But that was all on the surface level. What we deal with in this book is what's uh, underneath the surface, underneath that charm and wit uh, that uh, some of us Irishmen (laughs) have in abundance. So do we get to know him through his innermost thoughts as he meets and greets and uh, tries to deal with his past or is it in dialogue of how, how do we get to know and, and see this process of redemption I guess that's where we're headed to redemption yes uh, that, that's what that's where we're headed to, uh, to it's a rocky road uh, and it comes out in internal monologues with flashbacks to uh, to the 60s and to some of the subsequent period after he left and, went, and first ended up in Toronto uh, and through dialogue uh, as people as some of these characters from his past enter the scene his, his sister was the first one then there are then there are some incisive I think you know uh, dialogue where tensions come out and, uh, and the past is revealed. So between the flashbacks and the dialogue, the whole story slowly comes together. It's not, you know, it's not apparent at the beginning, uh, uh, and, uh, but it, eventually the, the characters become fully formed and one's understanding of what shaped both the uh, protagonist. And I would say the sister becomes almost an equal protagonist in this and so uh, it's uh, the story kind of is is told uh, from the eyes of the two of them uh, because they obviously saw different things uh, and had lost touch with how close they really were it, it took them uh, it took them a while even in this one week to rediscover that close connection that they had had when they were just children and uh, uh, and, and I'll leave. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to give right. anything away. Well, this is very different from what you've mostly done all your life, and you've written a lot, and you've been involved uh, with uh, welfare reform legislation. Even helped to develop that with President Clinton. So this is quite a change for you. Yes, uh, except for some uh, memoirs of my Peace Corps days, and. Uh, uh, almost all the books I've done uh, have been more academic and, and uh, policy-oriented. Um, some of them written in a very endearing style, but still much more serious. Uh, but there was always in the back of my mind, I, you know, when I was a, in college, I thought, I want to be a writer, that kind of thing. A, a dream that many of us had, but I decided I really also wanted to eat three meals a day and have a roof over my head. So I, <laughs> so I went uh, uh, the way of becoming a policy wonk, an academic, a consultant on policy issues, and it was a great life, no question about it. I, I, like I always tell people, I flew around the country working with the best and the brightest on some of society's most difficult issues. You can't ask for more than that. Uh, but 
in the back of my head, I always wanted to see if I could write a good, compelling story. And I, in, in the dedication, I tell this one little vignette that I ran across my English lit prof in college, and I, uh, I just said, I blurted out, you know, someday I want to be a writer. And and he didn't laugh at me, but the, he, he, the one thing he did ask me was, could I, can I, could I tell a good story? And I didn't know that, so I kind of stood mute, as you often do before your college professor. And so here, we, here I am, you know, 50 years later, or 50-some years later, I decided I need an answer to that question. And so this is my first um, fictional work. Tenuous Tendrils, uh, a compelling title for a compelling story, a very real. And with, uh, what would you say, uh, uh, when you're done reading, how does the reader feel? I think, you know, uh, that the reader should feel, there may be a, a few disappointments uh, in, the, uh, in the way things turn out, but on balance, I believe that the reader will feel uplifted uh, with a, a sense of warmth towards the characters. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it's interesting when you're writing fiction, you may start out with an end in mind, and, some, and one of the ends in mind that I had was quite dark. But as, as the characters evolve and take on a life of their own, they begin to tell the, the story themselves. You, you're just an instrument, and the characters begin to uh, plot their own way toward the ending that needs to be. We've been listening to Tom Corbett. Uh, Tom, tell us what's the best way to get your book, Tenuous Tendrils. Uh, you can try the public, publisher, exlibris.com, uh, but it's also available at uh, amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Uh, just just type in the, the title, and if you type in my name, you'll, besides the Tom Corbett Space Cadet uh, books that come up, <laughs> you should find some of my, <laughs> some of my other books uh, that, uh, uh, that also can be fascinating reading, particularly Ouch, Now I Remember, which is my memoir of my uh, early years, and that will give you the true story of my, my uh, wicked past as an Irish working-class kid. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. Okay, thank you. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.